Section 38 of The Wit and Humor of America, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan. Arrival Entertainment by Kate Field. I once heard a bright child declare that if circuses were prohibited in heaven, she did not wish to go there. She had been baptized and was under Christian influences, and, previous to this heterodoxy, had never given her good parents a moment's anxiety. Her naive utterance touched a responsive chord within my own breast. For well did I remember how gloriously the circus shone by the light of the other days. How the ringmaster, in a wrinkled dress coat, seemed the most enviable of mortals, being on speaking terms with all the celestial creatures who jumped over flags and threw balloons. How the clown was the dearest, funniest of men. How the young athletes in tights and spangles were my ideals of masculinity. And how Bella rose with one foot upon her native heath otherwise a well-padded saddle, and the other pointed in the direction of the sweet little cherubs that sit up aloft, was the most fascinating of her sex. I am persuaded that circuses filled an aching void in the universe. What children did before their invention, I shudder to think, for circuses are to childhood what butter is to bread, and what the world did before the birth of Burnham is almost equally frightful of problem. Some are born to shows, others attain shows, and yet again others have shows thrusted upon them. Barnum is a born showman. If ever a man fulfills his destiny, it is the discoverer of Tom Thumb. With the majority of men and women, life is a failure. Not until one leg dangles in the grave is Erasian detail disclosed. The round people always find themselves sticking in the square holes, and vice versa. But with Barnum, we need not deplore. We can smile at his reverses, from even the phoenix has caused to blush in his presence. Though persuaded by tongues of fire, Barnum remains invincible when iron, stone, and mortar crumble about him. And while yet the smoke is telling volumes of destruction, the cheery voice of the showman exclaims, Here you are, gentlemen, admission fifty cents, children, half price. Apropos of Barnum, once in my life I gave myself up to the unmitigated joy, weary of lecturing, and singing the song, I wish I were a boy again. I went to see the elephant. To speak truly, I saw not one elephant, but half a dozen. I had a feast of roaring and a flow of circus. In fact, I indulged in the wildest dissipation. I visited Barnum Circus and sucked peppermint candy in a way most childlike and bland. The reason seems obscure, but circuses and peppermint candy are as inseparable as peanuts in the Bowery. Appreciating the solemn fact, Barnum provides bigger sticks adorned with bigger red stripes than ever Romans sucked in the balmy days of the Colosseum. In the dim distance, I mistook them for barber poles, but upon direct application, I recognized them for my long-lost own. 
However, let me, like the Germans, begin with the creation. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is for sale Mr. Barnum's autobiography, full of interest and anecdote on one of the most charming productions ever issued from the press. Nine hundred pages, thirty-two full-page engravings, reduced from three fifty to a dollar fifty. Every purchaser enters free. How ordinary mortals can resist buying Barnum's autobiography for one dollar, such a bargain as never was, is incomprehensible. I believe they cannot. I believe they do their duty like men, as one man I resisted, because I belong to the press, and therefore am not mortal. Who ever heard of a journalist getting a bargain? With Spartan firmness I turned a deaf ear to the persuasive music of the propagandist, and entered where hope is all before. I was not staggered by a welcome from all the presidents of the United States, Fritz Green Halleck, General Hooker, and Grace Brown. These personages are rather woody, and red about the face, as though flushed with victories of the platform or the table. But I recognize their fitness in a menagerie. What athlete has turned more somersaults than some of these representative men? What lion has roared more gently than a few of these sucking doves? Barnum's tact in appropriating, grouping curiosities, living and dead, is too well known to require comment, passing what Sam Weller would call a regular knockdown of intellect. I took my seat high in the air amid a dense throng of my fellow creatures, and realized how many people it takes to make up the world. What did I see? I saw double. I beheld not one ring, but two, in each of which the uncommon variety of man was disporting in an entertaining manner. I felt for these uncommon men. Think what immortal hate must arise from these dual performances. We all like to receive the reward of merit, but when two performances are going on simultaneously, how are the artists to know from whom it is attended? Applause is the sweet compensation for which we all strive privately or publicly, and to be cheated out of it or left in doubt as to its destination is a refined form of the Inquisition. Fancy the sensations of a man balancing plates on the little end of nothing, a feat to which he has consecrated his life, at thought of his neighbor's performance of impossible feats in the air. It would be more than human in both not to wish the other in Jericho, or some other equally remote quarter of the globe. I sympathized with them. I became bewildered in my endeavor to keep one eye on each. If human beings were constructed on the same principle as Janus, and had two faces, a fore and an aft, circus would be convenient. But as nowadays double-faced people only wear two eyes in their heads, the Barnum conception muddles the intellect. I pray you, great and glorious showman, take pity on your artist and your audience. Don't drive the former mad and the latter distracted. Remember that insanity is on the increase and that accommodations in asylums are limited. Take warning before you undermine the reason of an entire continent. Beware, beware. I hear much and see much of the physical weakness of women. Michelet tells the sentimental world that woman is an exquisite invalid, with perennial headaches and 
nervous perpetuality on the neck. It is a mistake when I gaze upon German and French peasant women. I ask Michelet, which is right, he or nature? And since my introduction to Barnum's female gymnast, a good-looking, well-formed mother of a family, who walks about unflinchingly with men and boys on her shoulders, and carries a three-hundred-pound gun as easily as the ordinary woman carries a clothes-basket, I have been persuaded that the coming woman, like Brother Jonathan, will lick all creation. In that good time, women will have her rights, because she will have her muscle. Then, if there are murders and playful beatings between husbands and wives, the wives will enjoy all the glory of the crime. <laughs> what an outlook! And what a sublime consolation to the present and feeble race of wives that are having their throats cut and their eyes carved out, merely because their biceps have not gone into training. Barnum's female gymnast is an example to her sex. What woman has done, woman may do again. Mothers, train up your daughters in the way they should fight, and when they are married, they will not depart this life. God is on the side of the stoutest muscle, as well as of the heaviest battalions. It is perfectly useless to talk about the equality of the sexes as long as a man can strangle his own mother-in-law. I was exceedingly thrilled by the appearance of two young gentlemen from the Cannibal Islands, who are beautifully embossed in green and red, and have compassion for them for their sacrifices they made in putting on blankets and civilizations. Is it right to deprive them of their daily bread? I mean, their daily baby? Think what self-restraint they must exercise while gazing upon the toothsome infants that congregate at the circus. That they do gaze and smack their overhanging lips, I know, because, after going through the cannibalistic dance, they sat behind me and howled in a subdued manner. The North American Indian who occupied an adjoining seat favored me with a translation of their charming conversation, by which I learned many important facts concerning man as an article of diet. It appears that babies, after all, do not make the daintiest morsels. Tender they are, of course, but being immature, they have not the rich flavor of a youthful adult. This seems reasonable. Veal is tender, but can it be favorably compared with beef? The cases are parallel. The embossed young men considered babies excellent for entrees, but for roasts there is nothing like plump maidens in their teens. Men of twenty are not bad eating when older. They are invariably boiled, commentating upon the audience. The critics did not consider it appetizing, and, strange that it may appear, I felt somewhat hurt by the remark, for who is not vain enough to wish to be good-looking enough to eat? Fancy being shipwrecked off the Fuji Islands and discarded by the cannibals as a tough subject, while your companions are literally killed with attention. Can you not imagine that, under some circumstances, a peculiar jealousy of the superior tenderness of your friends would be a thorn in the flesh? rendering existence a temporary burden? If we lived among people who adored squinting, should we not all take to it and cherish it as the apple of our eye? And if we fell among the anthropopagy, would not our love of appropriation make us long to be as succulent as young pigs? What glory to escape from the jaws of death 
if the jaws repudiate us. So long as memory holds a seat in this distracted brain, I shall entertain unpleasant feelings toward the embossed young gentleman, who did not sigh to fasten their affections, otherwise their teeth, on me. It was worse than a crime. It was bad taste. Roaming among the wild animals, I made the acquaintance of a cassowary, in which I have been deeply interested in since childhood's sunny hours, for then it was oft I sang a touching hymn running thus. If I were a cassowary, far away in Timbuktu, I should eat a missionary, hat and boots and hymn book too. For that hour the cassowary occupied a large niche in my heart. The desire to gaze upon a bird, capable of digesting food to which even the ostrich never aspired, pursued me by day and tinctured my dreams by night. What you see for all your life will come upon suddenly, for when the whole family is at dinner, says Thoreau, I met the cassowary at dinner. He was dining alone, having left his family in Africa, and I must say that I never met with a greater disappointment. Were it not for the touching imitations of the hymn, I should believe it impossible for him to eat a missionary. A quieter, more amiable bird never stood on two legs. A polite attendant stirred him up for me, yet his temper and his feathers remained unruffled. Perhaps if our geographical position had changed to Timbuktu, and I had been a missionary with a hymn-book in hand, the cassowary might have realized my expectations. As it was, one more illusion vanished. In order to regain my spirits, I shook hands with the handsome giant in brass buttons. And speaking of giants leads me to the subject of all of nature, particularly the Circassian young lady, the dwarf, the living skeleton, the albinos, and the what-is-it. I have dropped more than one tear at the fate of these unfortunate beings, for what is more horribly solitary than to live in a strange crowd with no one to love, none to caress? Noah was a human. When he retired to the ark, he selected two of a kind from all the animal kingdom for the sake of sociability as well as for more practical purposes. Showmen should be equally considerate. To think of those albino sisters with never an albino bow, of the Circassian beauty with never a Circassian sweetheart, of the living skeleton with never another skeleton in his closet, how can he look so good-natured would be most mysterious, were not his digestion pronounced perfect. To think of that wretched what-is-it with never a Mrs. what-is-it produces unspeakable anguish. May they meet their affinities in another and a more sympathetic world, where monstrosities are impossible for the reason that we live our bones on earth. Since gazing at the what-is-it, I have become a convert to Darwin. It is too true our ancestors stood on their hind legs, and the less we talk about pedigree the better. The noble Democrat in search of a coat of arms and a grandfather should visit a grand moral circus. Let us assume a virtue, though we have it not. Let our pride ape humility. When I asked which I thought the greater necessity of civilization, lectures or circuses, I should lay my right hand upon my left heart and exclaim, Circuses. End of Arrival Entertainment by Kate Field 
Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan.